Good morning. It's always my great pleasure to come here to share the word with you. I really do enjoy coming out to the Off-Island Church, and I can definitely identify with Pastor Matthew with his wife being gone. Uh, my wife's gone about 40% of every month, <laughs> um, but uh, praise the Lord, he's answered one of our long-term prayer requests, and uh, this coming year, she's going to be home a lot more often, so that's great. When I was on uh, training missions in the Army, the cooks would often deploy sometime after the rest of us. And in the meantime, our provisions were called MREs. An MRE, that stands for Meal Ready to Eat. And uh, basically, it comes in this little brown bag, and you open it up, and it's got a heating pack and things inside. And the labels of MREs always make these grandiose claims. They say things like, Beefsteak with mushrooms and black beans. Or turkey breast with gravy and potatoes. Or jambalaya. And you think, well, that sounds pretty good. Well, then you open the package and you see what's inside. And the product generally does not live up to its claims. Uh, with your eyes closed, for example, you would not be able to tell the difference between the beef and the turkey. We all did our best, especially to avoid the dreaded black bean and rice burrito, <laughs> uh, which you can imagine, you know, they have a shelf life of 10 years. Um, the reality of MREs is that despite their claims, they leave you with a bad taste in your mouth, and generally, I, I usually got a stomachache. So it was that whenever the kitchen truck showed up, we were all very, very thankful for real food. And every soldier that you meet will also be very, very thankful for a home-cooked meal. Now, a lot of people think that choosing God means giving up the things that they enjoy, the things that bring them pleasure. But the Bible says that like MREs compared to a home-cooked meal, so the joy and pleasure of life apart from God compares to the lasting joy and true pleasure with him. Psalm 16 illustrates this truth very well. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them up to Psalm 16, and I'm going to go ahead and read that. Psalm 16 is a miktam of David, as it says. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, in your presence, 
there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What we see in this psalm is that David found complete satisfaction in consistently choosing God over all the pale substitutes found apart from him. And that's the central point I want to make with, to you today, is that consistently choosing God leads to true, leads to lasting joy and true pleasure. We first see David's choice in verses 1 and 2. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. Pay special attention to these phrases, in you I take refuge, and you are my Lord. David chose God to be his refuge. He chose God to be his Lord. He recognized that his security and all his good were to be found only in God. This choice is echoed three more times throughout the psalm. In verse 5, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He was content in God's provision. In verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. David continued to choose and trust in God. And verse 4, we see that David refused false gods in favor of the one true God. David gained such lasting joy and true pleasure as a result of choosing God that whatever he left behind was no longer worthwhile in comparison. In verse 2, he even says, I have no good apart from you. You will never truly be satisfied and filled with joy by anything other than God. And once you have found real joy and pleasure in God, it will make whatever you gave up to choose him seem much less worthwhile. Why is this so? Well, it's because God made you that way. Have you ever heard that question, what is the meaning of life? We've heard that question. Actually, I think that question is somewhat meaningless. A better question might be, what is the purpose of life? What are we here for? Or as the Westminster Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer that you're supposed to give then is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God made us for his own glory. And if you read the Bible, you will find that his ultimate plan is for us to rejoice in his presence for all eternity. Since we were made for this, nothing else will ever fully satisfy us. But sadly, because of our sinful hearts, we try to find all sorts of alternatives. We are able to make idols out of almost anything but they're all only pale substitutes for the one we truly desire, for God. I think that's what David meant, what he had in mind in verse 4. He said, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. You know, sugar makes things sweet and tasty, but it does nothing at all good for your body. Your body does not need it for anything, and there's even research connecting overuse of sugar to a variety of health problems. An interesting thing would happen if you were to cut sugar completely out of your diet. 
and eat only good, healthy food that your body's designed for. Eventually, if you tried to eat sugary and sweet foods again, even a small amount would make you sick to your stomach. The reason is that your body would no longer be accustomed to the quick high of sugar and only to the lasting and true sustenance of good food. I think what David was communicating in the psalm was that if you consistently choose God instead of all these pale substitutes you can find, you will get used to lasting joy and true pleasure that's found only in him. The, the things that you are made to enjoy. And over time, your desire for God will become far stronger than your desires for anything else. Eventually, the things you used to run after, the money, power, status, sex, fashion, convenience, things, whatever it is, will be exposed as only being able to offer you short-term joy, short-term pleasure. Incomparable to what you can find in God. So I would like to highlight three desires that our souls call out for. Desires that we try to fill with pale substitutes when they are only truly satisfied in God. Things that I think that this psalm gives us some answers to. And what I hope you will see is that the real thing you can have in God is so much better than its pale substitute. What I hope you will see is that consistently choosing God is the only way to find lasting joy and true pleasure. The first desire I'd like to highlight is the desire to be satisfied with your life. The desire to be satisfied with your life. This desire we so often try to fill by being in control of things, being in control of our situations, by struggling to be the winner, by accumulating more and more things. But in these, we are never truly satisfied because circumstances bombard us with the truth that tells us that we don't really have control. And we always see someone else that's better than we are. And the Joneses always have more and nicer things. We try to fill the desire for satisfaction with things that don't satisfy. Let's look at David's solution in verses 5 and 6. He says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The truth is that when you choose God to fill your desire for satisfaction in life, you will be satisfied by God and made content in his arrangement of your life. We see an interesting phrase in verse 5. David says, you hold my lot. A lot was a way of deciding. By way of illustration, I grew up with four brothers. And naturally, we would sometimes be unable to decide for ourselves uh, who got the last slice of pizza or who rode in the front seat of the car or who had to wash the dishes at the end of a meal. We were just incapable of deciding that for ourselves. And so we would all have different opinions about these things, and the only way to resolve the matter was by flipping a coin. A coin is unbiased, and so it was fair. 
In Old Testament times, they did something similar. They cast lots to determine fate, to find out what God's will is, or to divide up a family's inheritance. The idea was to fairly decide who gets what by, in essence, flipping a coin. But within their God-centered worldview, it was understood that when you cast lots, it wasn't, it wasn't random chance. It was up to God to determine the result. So in that way, if they're dividing the land between two sons and one son gets a bigger share than the other son, he can't say, Dad, you've cheated me, because Dad says, look, this was God's decision. God determined the result. I think it's this way of distributing inheritance that David had in mind when he wrote these verses. Who is it that holds David's lot in this passage? It's God. And what is the portion chosen by his lot? See, they would cast the lot to find out what portion you got. The portion chosen by the lot, again, it's God. And then verse 6 is really a parallel of verse 5 that adds in David's emotional response to this. He saw God's direction and arrangement of his life. He recognized that with God in charge, the only way his life could go was toward God. And he said, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Strange thing about David's words here is that if you read about his life, he had a lot of trouble. Some of the trouble he even brought on himself. He had one of his sons try to take over the kingdom from him. Uh, he got into a whole lot of trouble when he was on top of a roof looking where he shouldn't be looking. So how is it then that he's able to express such profound satisfaction in God and be so content with his life? I think the root of David's contentedness, contentedness was accepting that God is in control. From there, he would have been able to see that God could use all the events of his life to develop him into a more godly person. Essentially, God was steering the boat of David's life back towards God. In Western cultures especially, we have this very strong focus on being self-sufficient, on being the master of our own destiny, and even having the most toys. We move out of our parents' homes as early as 16. We applaud the man who does things his own way, no matter what anyone else says. We especially worship the 35-year-old billionaire and his, with his massive house and fast cars and his nice things. The problem is that both self-sufficiency and control over our own destiny are nothing more than illusions. They're not real. Those who have power and wealth only have it by God's allowance. And all the nice things in the world will only ever offer you a very, very short-term joy. Part of choosing God is accepting that he is the Lord of your life. He, rather than you, is in control. It's instead of struggling against him, moving with him. It means submitting yourself to him instead of struggling against him. There is great satisfaction to be found in God's presence and great peace to be found when you let go 
and let God steer your boat. When you allow yourself to be completely satisfied in him, God's rightful place is on the throne of your life. Consistently choosing to be satisfied by God and to be made content in his arrangement of things is how you find lasting joy and true pleasure in your life. being satisfied by God and made content in his arrangement of things. The second desire I would like to highlight is the desire to make the right choices. Desire to make the right choices. We all know that life can be difficult to navigate. We are consumed sometimes with worry about what the best decision is to make. Or... Is it right or wrong for me to do this or that? The amount of confusion people have in life is attested by the mountains of self-help books that are available to us today. The world has advice for us on every topic from how to get rich to, how we should, to what we should think is right and wrong. Hardly a day goes by that the world does not replace old advice with the complete opposite new advice. So how do we sort through it all? David said in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. King David called God his counselor. A good king knows that he doesn't know everything, and so rulers then as now have counselors. That is, people who advise them and instruct them so they are able to make wise and informed decisions. David knew that the best possible counselor was not any of the wise men in his kingdom, but God who made him and who established his kingdom. When you choose God to be your counselor, you can take great joy in the confidence that God's word is right. His advice on how to live in this world is the best you can get. You can be thankful for God's counsel. Think about it this way. If you have a car made by the Honda company, and you want advice and instruction on the best way to use and maintain this car, who do you go to for advice? Well, you go to somebody who works for the Honda company. Obviously, they made the car. So let me ask you this. Who made the world? Who sustains it even now by his almighty power? Who made you? If you need advice and instruction about how to live your life or what's right and wrong, to whom should you go? You should go to God. Who made you? Who made the world? Obviously. So why are so many of us still wasting time with pop psychology or self-help and world-originated wisdom when the real thing is available to us in God's word? God gave us his word. His word will give you the best, most solid foundation for living righteously and well that can possibly be had. On top of that, it is only by knowledge available through the scriptures that we're able to put our trust in Jesus and be saved. 
praise God that he has not left us to wander about in the darkness. Praise God for his counsel. I have to admit that when I was studying for this sermon, the first thing I noticed about the next phrase of verse 7 was that in Hebrew, it doesn't say heart. It says kidneys. And so apparently when ancient Israelites thought of their inner being, their kidneys came to mind. And if you read this passage in Hebrew, it says, In the night also my kidneys instruct me. Well, I thought that was kind of funny. But um, David's point was that his inner being instructs him at night. wondered what that sort of meant. Well, have any of you ever been so caught up in a book that you just read the whole thing from beginning to end without stopping? I did that when I was in high school with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I just read them all. It took me three days to read all the books. What happened when I tried to go to sleep at night? I dreamed Lord of the Rings. Or have you watched a whole TV series at once without stopping? What happens when you try to go to bed at night? You dream about that TV series. You find your mind so saturated with it that it's still with you all night. I think that's what David was talking about when he said, in the night also my heart instructs me. It's that he was so saturated, he had so saturated his mind with the law and wisdom of God's word that even while he was in bed at night, it was still with him, still instructing him, still filling him with joy. I believe that we are meant to be that saturated with God's word that it's still with us even in our sleep. This is what it means to choose God as your counselor. It's to trust what he says above any other counsel and to be saturated with his word so that you know what his counsel is. There's a great passage in the book of John where Jesus is praying for his disciples. And he says that the Holy Spirit will come and remind them of everything that he said. That's great. I'm glad that the Holy Spirit is here to remind us of, what, of everything that Jesus has said. But can the Spirit remind you of what you don't already know? Can the Spirit remind you of what you've not read? No. You need to saturate yourself with the Word of God so that the Spirit can remind you of the Word of God. You'll find that what God says often flies in the face of much of the advice and life instruction that you can find in the world. A necessary consequence of choosing what God says is that you will be different, you will have different views. You risk being laughed at, being called intolerant, in some cases being hated, being avoided, some places even being arrested. But by choosing God, by choosing God, you will have to give up much of the world's counsel. But you will find that the world's counsel is actually just a pale substitute for the wisdom that God has made available to us in his word. In place of the constantly shifting advice of the world, the stumbling around in the darkness, 
for whom today's sin is tomorrow's paraded value. You can choose the unchanging wisdom and knowledge of God. Only God's wisdom can help you make truly good decisions. Only his counsel can lead you to lasting joy and true pleasure in life. And so David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. The third desire that we as human beings try to fill apart from God that we find an answer to in this psalm is the desire for security. Desire to be secure, to be okay. The world counsels us that the way to ensure our security is to spend our lives accumulating wealth, power, and strength. It reminds me of when I was beginning high school. My teachers told me that I had to start planning for my retirement in order to ensure my security when I got old. Being 16, (laughs) that was kind of a new thought for me. It wasn't necessarily bad advice, but because of that and because of the many times I heard that repeated, I began to gain the, the distinct impression that life was all about working really hard to achieve that final goal of retiring. So I was going to work my whole life for the goal of retiring. It was really depressing for me because I thought that meant that I would have to postpone all the joy and pleasure of life until I was too old to enjoy it. You have to remember, I was 16 at the time. And who knows, something might happen to me in the meantime such that I never reach retirement and all that effort will be for nothing. Well, the Bible tells us that the security we try to find in wealth, in power, and strength, or even planning for retirement, is only a pale substitute for the real security that is only found in God. In verses 8 and 9, we see that David found security in God's strength not in wealth, power, or his own strength, but in God's strength. And that was a source of great joy for him. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. When David said that he had set the Lord always before him, I think he was most likely uh, referring to a battlefield situation. He's he's thinking in a battlefield sort of metaphor. And in in ancient warfare as today, uh, the king did not go to the front line. He was behind the army. And even then, he would have an elite personal guard. Naturally, the king was the one who kept things organized. He couldn't be in front. And so he would start with volleys from bows and catapults and then send in his fighters, the infantry. The goal, of course, being to destroy the enemy quickly and decisively. On the real battlefield, as well as the battlefields of life, David knew that he needed God to be his artillery, his infantry, and his most elite guard. He knew that the best way to victory and security was not in his army not in his guards, not in his city walls, not in his wealth or his power. He would not be shaken 
because God was with him. Now, most of us don't have to go out and fight battles, but we do still have this desire for security and this need for security. We're advised by the world to build up walls with education, with good jobs, with wealth and power, armies of lawyers, doctors, and investors to secure us. They tell us that if we have these things, we will be secure. I'm not saying that these are bad things. On the contrary, they can be blessings. But they cannot be relied upon for your permanent security. In the way the world economy works today, I met a taxi driver who had a computer engineering degree. I met a car washer who had a business degree. I even at one point met a trafficked woman who had a master's in psychology. I've seen the news of one of the wealthiest men in the world whose wealth was no avail against cancer. I've seen powerful rulers dragged out of their palaces and killed in the street. The teacher in Ecclesiastes put it this way as well. He said, I have seen riches that were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came. Wealth and power are not things you can put your trust in because they so easily disappear. They're fleeting and can't offer you any lasting protection. The first class goes down with the rest of the airplane. If you think about it, why do we desire security? It's because the world seems so unpredictable and we're unsure of what's going to happen next, and that worries us. In contrast, in the Gospels, Jesus said, do not be anxious or do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Wealth and power and even education are only pale substitutes for the true security that is only found in choosing God. In choosing God, you don't give up security because the reality is, apart from him, you never really had it. Instead, you find real security in God's strength, God's power. Remember, he's the creator of the universe. He's the one who's sustaining it all right now as we speak. He's the one in control. And so you trade worry for lasting joy and true pleasure in God's kingdom. Of course, as Christians, our final goal is not retirement, but eternity with God and his kingdom. It's not always easy to see in the Old Testament or uh, to recognize this eternal hope. 
Well, we find it pretty clearly here in Psalm 16, in, especially in verses 10 to 11. He says, My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to shale, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word shale is a word that just expresses the grave. And the word, uh, and then decay or corruption, it's like the pit. It's basically a metaphor for being buried in the ground. It's worth noting that the apostles cited this psalm, actually in Acts 13 that we just read before we started, as being fulfilled in Christ and as the expectation of believers in him. When we read this, it's important to keep in mind that David wrote this psalm around a thousand years before Jesus was born. It's hard to know exactly how much David understood about our eternal hope, but what we can see was that he knew enough to have faith that God would not abandon him to the grave. To know that death would not be a permanent situation. Instead, he would experience fullness of joy and pleasures at the right hand of God forever. And that is also our hope. That's where our real security rests. So what pale alternatives in this regard can we find in the religions and philosophies of the world? Well, let's look at some different claims. Um, Up-and-coming religion, atheism, they say, do whatever you feel like and disappear in the end. Or hedonism, which I think is basically atheism without the questions. Saturate yourself with all the pleasure you can, because in the end, that's all you have. You die, you disappear. Or uh, Buddhism. Work really hard to squash all of your desires so that you can be released from ignorance and become nothing. Or the majority religion of this region. Obey every command of Allah's prophet, and in the end, he may let you into paradise. Interesting thing about the paradise. I, last year, I had a conversation with an imam about this, and I was asking him some questions about what's paradise for a Muslim. And I was, I was really struck by what he said. He said that Allah is not in paradise. That if, if he lets you into paradise, he's still above looking down. You still never get to be in his presence. So I don't know about you, but disappearing, becoming nothing, or a godless paradise. These just are not enough for me. So what's eternity and life like if you choose God? Well, in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In Jesus, we look forward to life, even if we die. Eternal life, as the psalm says, full of joy and true pleasures at the right hand of God. In God's presence. That's what I want.
everything else pales in comparison. You see, you don't, you don't lower your expectations when you choose God. You raise them higher than anything the world has to offer. You, you don't try to squash your desires, but you desire the only one who can truly satisfy you. C.S. Lewis said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We desire security. We desire satisfaction in life. and We desire good counsel, among many, many other things. But these desires can only truly be filled in God and by God. In choosing God, we choose lasting joy and true pleasure. Choosing God is not something you do reluctantly or, ingrudg- or begrudgingly in this case. You choose God when you realize how beautiful and precious he is. When you realize that in him is real joy, real security, true pleasure, and abundant life. Does this mean you have to drum up some happy feelings or that you have to smile all the time? Or you have to always be joyful and happy and that you're not allowed to have any struggles or heartbreak in your life. God didn't promise that. He didn't say that in choosing him you would never have hard times in your life. In fact, he promised the opposite. You will struggle. You will experience pain. But God has also promised to be with you through it all. And trust me when I say that God with you is far better than any comfort that you can find apart from him. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 13:44 about a man who found a treasure in a field. He said, "In his joy, the man went and sold everything he owned and bought that field." The treasure he discovered was so precious that he joyfully pawned everything he owned to get it. Joyfully. That's what it's like to choose God. It's realizing that everything, everything else pales in comparison to him. That nothing you came win with compares to him. That what you used to rejoice in was only a pale substitute for God's presence. I'd like to encourage you to create an appetite for God. To consistently choose him over all the pale substitutes that you can find in the world. Settle for nothing less than the fullness of joy and the true pleasures forever that you can only find in God's presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, that you reveal yourself to us through it, that you teach us how to live, show us what's right and wrong, and especially 
that through it we can learn of your Son who came and died on our behalf and was raised again, giving us the hope also of resurrection and eternal life with you if we put our trust in him. Heavenly Father, I pray that each person here would see the truth that our deepest desires can only be met in you. That all of the short-term joys and strange pleasures of this world cannot compare to the lasting joy and true pleasure that we can have in you. Pray these things in Jesus' precious name.